Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we discuss plans for children to return to school next month. Arizona educators have raised concerns for weeks about the plan to resume in-person instruction on August 17th. Following pressure from educators, activists, and elected leaders, on Thursday, Governor Doug Ducey and Superintendent of Public Instruction Kathy Hoffman released more guidance for schools this fall. This is the greatest challenge to public education in our lifetimes, and Arizona has the opportunity to lead the nation. Hoffman released a statement Wednesday requesting Governor Ducey use public health data to determine reopening metrics and guarantee full funding for distance learning. In the press conference Thursday, she said both of those things are part of the new plan. School leaders and educators are under a tremendous amount of stress as they plan for the upcoming school year, and they have already done a great deal of work to plan for high-quality learning opportunities for students this year, no matter where that learning will take place. But I cannot ask our educators and families to enter this school year without critical assurances, policies, and resources to set them up for safety and success. The governor's office said the state's health and education departments will develop and release public health benchmarks for schools by August 7th. The plan leaves a lot up to individual districts, including when in-person instruction will resume. All schools will have to start the year with teacher-led distance learning. Schools will be required to provide 180 days of instruction regardless of instructional method. The state will also send millions of additional dollars from the Federal CARES Act to schools. Schools must provide free on-site learning and support services for students who need or want it and will set their own face-covering policies for students, but adults must wear masks. On Wednesday, Tucson teachers organized a motor march, a car rally to protest the return to classrooms. Teachers we talked to earlier this week say with Arizona's COVID-19 cases so widespread, it's simply not safe for educators, students, staff, or their families. Andrea Ayala, who teaches English and history at Pueblo High School, was one of the organizers. Though Governor Ducey did push back the school start date to August 17th, Ayala says there's no way COVID-19 rates will be safe by then. You know, we did these marches last week. We've been writing le- letters, parents, um, teachers, administrators, superintendents, medical professionals have been begging our governor to come up with a safe, comprehensive plan that's based on science that will protect us. And his response has been, we'll wait and see. Ayala says she's especially worried about the disproportionate impacts to the Latino community. My biggest concern is that my students will suffer more loss than they already have because of unsafe decisions. Ayala says before returning to the classroom, she wants to see a statewide data-based plan to determine a safe level of risk, ensure schools have sufficient PPE, and funding to carry out sanitation and hybrid instruction models or staggered schedules to reduce class size. On Thursday, the governor announced such a plan with benchmarks being developed by the state departments of health and education. Ayala says schools should be all online this fall and using the time to prepare for students to return. So we have one of the highest um, student-to-teacher ratio in Arizona. And 
there's no way that we can come back to to normal schooling even when our levels come down this year when we have no vaccine, no medication, you know, to help us fight COVID. J.J. Federico teaches Mexican-American history and government at Troya High School on Tucson's west side. He agrees schools should remain online as much as possible this fall to protect teachers, students, and staff. I feel as though if we go in too early, too soon, we're going to see just an increase in COVID cases for my students, my colleagues, and their families. Um, What kids bring with them to school, they carry with them outside of school, wherever they go. Um, And it's something that I don't want to be a party to or feel guilty in helping spread. Marisol Garcia is a teacher and vice president of the Arizona Education Association, the largest union for public school employees in the state. We talked with her before the governor's plan was released on Thursday. The AEA, its members are very clear. We we are not ready to go back into the classroom until um, health officials tell us it's safe and local officials give us an all clear to ensure that every employee, every student is walking into a safe building. At the beginning of the pandemic, AEA sent a letter to Governor Ducey uh, asking to help keep schools closed until the state can come up with a comprehensive plan. Um, You all say it's not safe yet, but is there a plan that you see for when you think it is safe? Yeah, I mean, we're talking to educators across the state, and this is very difficult in lieu of leadership. Um, coming from the governor. So, you know, we're, we're trying to become scientists and, um, and, and reinforce what scientists have told us by doing research instead of having a comprehensive plan uh, moving forward. For us, it's clear that we need to have a plan not only from the state, but specifically from each of the districts on how to begin learning but continue learning at a high level we want to make sure that community spread is slowed down and that um, there's no danger walking into a school at the very bare minimum. We have to follow the CDC guidelines. Are districts at least, given the resources they have, trying to come up with, with the plans at least at the district level? What you're, what you're seeing is either two different uh, ways that districts are handling this. One, you're seeing some very Um, thoughtful responses saying, we don't know how to appropriately have in-class face-to-face schools. So we're going to, as of now, plan to not have students on campus until after first quarter. But then you have another point, and that is a lot of school districts are just eagerly waiting for this governor to come out with a a specific date or plan. Um, And so uh, district by district, there are different types of of ways of handling this, all of which increases the level of anxiety for every single teacher, um, educator, paraprofessional, not knowing what next week's going to look like. Is the governor working with the education community? You all sent a letter or a couple of letters to the governor. Have you had a chance to sit down with him? No, we've never had any response from the governor's office. We've worked very closely with Superintendent of Instruction, Kathy Hoffman, um, She has clearly worked close with educators, being an educator herself, knowing how important it is to have this. We don't think that the governor has worked with school board members, 
We know that he has reached out to some superintendents who, in his words, um, are working with principals who are working with teachers. It would be so much easier if the governor would take some time and actually talk to the AEA and its members to help him understand some of the, the issues that we're confronting and concerns we have. The governor hinted last week that on Thursday he would make some sort of an announcement regarding the upcoming school year. What do you want him to say? A couple things. We want him to halt any face-to-face -face meetings at schools or directives given, given for educators to be on campus unless necessary. We'd love to hear something about funding coming from the state to ensure that when schools do open, that they can do so in a way that is uh, appropriately safe for our, our students and staff. We'd love to have a long-term plan with specific metrics attached to it, including com community spread or the number of positive cases within a community. And I think most importantly, we wanna hear the governor say that educators from the cafeteria worker to the paraprofessional will be paid. In March of last year, of course, everybody knows we, sm we switched to remote teaching. What do you think remote teaching will look like in this academic year, assuming things got learned uh, and there's been more time to plan as opposed to the sudden nature of it in March? What happened in March was crisis distance learning. Most districts, including my own where my son went to school, spent almost the first three weeks just figuring out how to feed the children, make sure they were in safe circumstances, trying to get them um, a computer, trying to get them um, some sort of way of communicating with their educators. So we lost a lot of time because it had to happen so quick. We're also losing time because we don't have a plan. So there's a lot of educators who are still waiting to find out if they're gonna show up in person or show up remotely, which are two different jobs, two different professions. And so they, they've spent a lot of time over the summer trying to hone the new craft of delivering online. But if districts won't make a final decision, they're kind of in limbo, almost creating two to three different lesson plans, hoping that one of them will work under whatever plan a district comes up with. That was Mary Saul Garcia with the Arizona Education Association. On Thursday, Governor Ducey released new guidance around the start of the new school year, including continuity of pay for all educators. Educators and parents know schools provide value in addition to basic learning. We all crave human interaction and social connectedness. Michael Salkowski is a school psychologist and assistant professor in the University of Arizona's College of Education. School also has been historically shown to reduce inequalities that might exist uh, regarding how education is delivered across different classes and uh, races. Um, also, School might be the safest environment for some students who might live in, in home environments or in communities um, that are, are challenging or dangerous or unstable. And they also provide a lot of non-academic factors that um, I consider to be sometimes the sticking factors for students beyond classroom-based learning, um, such as extracurricular activities, clubs, sports, uh, opportunities for social interaction, before and after school programs. Collectively, all of these things provide students with a much more rich learning experience that is much more human. Is there any way many of these positive things can be conveyed to students who are remotely learning? 
Absolutely. I think the best thing that schools can do is to try and replicate the human elements of learning uh, within whatever technologies are available. So this involves, you know, face-to-face -face learning opportunities, interacting with the teacher so that those teacher-student relationships maintain, um, you know, strong, uh, interacting with peers in group-based activities, um, providing rich learning opportunities through available media, technologies, and um, stuff that keeps students engaged, right? Uh, the social dynamics of learning and kind of the research behind all of that shows that really opportunities to respond, interact, and engage provide much richer learning experiences than um, sitting there and uh, just taking information in. It sounds like, though, no matter what, uh, no matter how much engagement there is across the screen, you think it's still better for kids to be sitting in a classroom of some sort because of all the other dynamics that you can't get across the screen. Yeah, that's true. So another massively important element of, of schools and what they provide is uh, opportunities for students to develop social emotional learning skills. So this would be uh, participating with peers, uh, sharing resources, information, developing their own emotional competencies, you know, responding to social dynamics, situations, managing their own emotions. Um, this kind of stuff is much more efficiently learned in person, of course, where there is this social reciprocity taking place and there's um, a social dynamic that can be mediated by teachers or other individuals in the school environment or, or even peers among themselves. What do we know so far and what have we learned about how remote learning and stay-at-home policies are affecting kids? None of the outcomes that we're seeing in preliminary studies are surprising to people in the field of psychology, particularly people with kind of a developmental or child-focused perspective. Uh, so, you know, the stress, the anxiety, the loneliness, uh, all this stuff is associated with kind of social disconnection, right? Mediated educational experiences only take you so far. We're kind of pre-programmed for in-person, live uh, social experiences and social interactions. And, uh, and that's pretty hardwired, right? You know, and there's, there's a whole rich kind of neurobiological research there. Um, so it, it's only going to take you so far regarding the kind of social aspect of it, which is going to then influence kind of the academic side of things as well. Is there anything that families can do to help their students along, be it with the socialization or, or all of those things? Well, first, parents should, should take care of themselves, right? So as, as we're all kind of facing this pandemic together, uh, parents, you know, engaging in self-care and ultimately being um, a good model for students as we're all going through um, an unprecedented situation within at least recent times. Um, so, you know, having the family stable first and foremost will help students with, you know, their readiness to learn, um, their readiness to engage in social environments, and ultimately their overall well-being. The second thing would be to try and replicate social experiences as much as possible using existing technologies um, that either the school provides or exists in the home environment. And, and also then the third thing would be communicating to them that 
the kind of fun stuff that might have been, you know, their favorite part of school, that's going to come back. It's not going to be gone for forever. Um, they'll be able to play, you know, basketball again with their friends. They'll be able to participate in student government. Um, so, so that is coming back. It's not gone for forever. It's just a temporary phase um, that, you know, they're going through, their peers are going through, their teachers are going through, and other people that are involved with their educational experience are going through concomitantly. That was Michael Salkowski, an assistant professor in the University of Arizona's school psychology program. In late June, Governor Ducey and State Superintendent of Public Instruction Hoffman announced a plan to send $270 million to public schools to help with reopening. On Thursday, they announced more funding will go to schools. Much of that money is earmarked to help schools with remote learning. Private schools did not receive that state money, but were eligible for some funding from the Federal CARES Act. About two dozen private and charter schools in Pima County received Paycheck Protection, or PPP, loans from the Federal Small Business Administration. Julie Sherrill, the head of the Gregory School, says they needed it. We are so reliant on our tuition, uh, and 75% of our operating budget every year is people, it's, it's faculty and staff that help to, to run our programs here. So um, we are concerned about the budget and I can't imagine where we would have been without that assistance from the, the PPP um, loan because it, it, it assured us that we could continue to employ the faculty and staff that we have. Federal reports indicate the loan was supposed to save 75 jobs at the Gregory School. South Point Catholic High School also received a PPP loan. Kay Sullivan, the school's president, says the money helped, but the budget is still tight. We're having to um, reallocate um, funds in our budget. And so um, looking at reserve funds, uh, rainy day funds, and it is certainly raining right now, um, that we are having to utilize um, those funds in order to get through. At Sal Point, the loan was supposed to help cover more than 200 jobs, according to federal reports. Putting the difference in financial models aside, private schools like Sal Point and the Gregory School face many of the same issues that public schools do with reopening during the COVID-19 pandemic. Classes at the Gregory School will begin online, but Cheryl says a small student body and a large campus offer some advantages. The school is looking at ways to use tents and other structures to teach in person when students do return to campus. We have arranged to have seven or eight different outdoor little learning pavilions. Um, that way students not only, like if they're in a study hall, we've got Wi-Fi all, all over campus. And so, and the medical professionals have all told us that outdoors is so much safer. So students could be in shaded covered areas with Wi-Fi, you know, for independent studying. Sal Point plans on opening a dual track program with in-person and online classes that could include a split schedule. But they will also allow students to learn remotely with the help of new tools. Sal Point has invested in um, audiovisual technology for 70 learning spaces. 
uh, swivel robot technology with Android tablets, high resolution cameras, microphones that the teachers wear so that the camera can follow them as they move throughout the classroom in order to allow for synchronous learning. Like public school districts, both Sal Point and the Gregory School will require everyone on campus to wear masks, and they're wrestling with programs like lunch, looking at multiple shifts and multiple locations for the midday meal. As we discussed earlier in the show, public schools are also trying to figure out how to safely teach kids this fall. Manny Valenzuela is superintendent of the Sal Rita Unified School District. Teachers in his district are expected back next week to start preparing. I think there's simultaneously feelings of wanting to move toward normalcy, but there's also understandable apprehension and perhaps an elevated level of uh, anxiety and concern based largely on what we all know to be true, which is that there's a lot of uncertainty about this situation. We've been working like a lot of districts to create as much flexibility and choice to families um, as, as we can. And so one of the things we did is we built um, a fully online virtual digital academy for grades K-12. And we've had about 20% of our students choose uh, that platform. It sounds like with that academy that you will have teachers who specifically will be teaching online and teachers who potentially will be specifically teaching in the classroom and they won't have to split their time. Correct. Well, you know, one of the uncertain variables that we're trying to navigate is the stability of our finances and the uncertainty of enrollment and and those related factors. So what we anticipate having is, yes, um, a group of teachers that have been designated ideally proportional to the number of students that desire this full-time virtual, uh, this comprehensive option. Um, But we also have um, the majority of our students that have chosen the traditional educational platform. But even within that, we are uh, refining and expanding the remote learning option, which sometimes gets confused with the digital because they both involve technology and they're similar, I guess, in a way. But this is the platform that we will all be on August 10th when we start the school year. We're all going to be in this virtual space in one way or another, and then uh, foreseeably transition back to the traditional mode when it's safe and and, uh, appropriate to do so. Have the teachers who will be doing the online had the opportunity for professional development? Obviously, that's an expensive uh, part of this. And as you said, budgets are limited. So one of the things we did with intentionality is we moved back the traditional start day of the year uh, only by a week, but it was purposeful. We went from August 3rd to August 10th. And the purpose is that uh, in the time that teachers come back on July the 29th, it's anticipated that we will spend significant amount of time in professional development. Of course, part of that is just being acclimated and becoming more ready to the new procedures and routines and cleaning and sanitation protocol, because that's gonna look different. But a big part of that is additional reinforcement, additional coaching, and additional training on how to implement and operate successfully 
in the remote learning space so that we can do it with the highest level of fidelity and quality. Students get sick. Students get the flu. They're out for a week or, or, or whatever. If, if a student now comes down with COVID, they could be out for many weeks. How do you get them caught back up? It's hard enough to get a student under normal times caught back up. Yeah, and you know that's that's one of the many variables that we're that all educators you know around the country and beyond are, are struggling with is is how are we going to be able to navigate these complex and and rapidly changing variables? Um, again, our goal is to build as big a toolbox as possible and to teach and train our faculty and staff so that we can adapt quickly and change. Uh, for example, if a, if a student, um, let's just say hypothetically, a student in a classroom tests positively for uh, COVID-19, um, then we go through the, the tracing protocol. And again, depending on the situation, it might be uh, a group that has to go home and be quarantined. And we're developing um, this classroom suite where teachers have a basic ability to provide uh, continuing independent and guided work so that they can work on at home with with basic levels of support. Um, if it turns out that the whole class is in that situation, then the whole class can ideally move to that situation, including the teacher, if the teacher has to be quarantined. The state has sent some money to districts to help with enhanced cleaning and technological needs and all of those things. How's the budget in the district? I would say in general, we always try and be as conservative as we can, but there's no question that this situation has created uh, an additional um, financial obligation and duty for us. Um, we've received uh, money from the from the CARES grant, I think for our district, about $300,000, and we've pretty much kind of divided it into two important objectives to be able to function effectively here. One is obviously we're spending significant amount of those dollars to support cleaning and sanitation. We've purchased um, electrostatic uh, cleaners uh, so that we can continue to implement uh, at an even higher level of fidelity, frequency, and depth of cleaning. The other part is we know that uh, this new distance learning, virtual learning platform is a significant shift for, for many districts, including ours. And so we are using um, the lion's share of the other half to not only improve our infrastructure and the capacities of our network, but to purchase hundreds of more uh, Chromebooks so that students that don't have access are less likely to be limited in their access to their education. That was Manny Valenzuela, superintendent of the Saurita Unified School District. And that's the buzz for this week. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. And Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.